I knew nothing about running a business. I knew nothing about real estate. I didn't even know I had bought real estate. Honestly, I thought I was buying a business. And here, I don't know, 12 years later, that property is worth about $13 million. I've bought over $30 million in real estate. And it has given me this amazing financial freedom to homeschool and support all four of my kids. Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another episode of the Action Academy podcast, the show that teaches you how to replace corporate with cash flow and helps you unlock your inner entrepreneur. My name is Brian Lubin. And today, ladies and gentlemen, we have a wonderful, wonderful episode for you. Now, guys, you may be able to tell by the sound of my voice, but I still do not have my microphone. So uh, the podcast still goes on. So a lot of you guys are sitting, waiting and wishing for all of the top equipment for you to film your podcast, but I'm doing this one on my MacBook microphone. So guys, bear with me on this one. It's still going to be a wonderful episode, but I just wanted to give you a heads up. So today's guest is none other than my new friend, Heather Blankenship. Heather has over $30 million in her portfolio of RV parks and campsites. So she has a super interesting niche here where she is able to buy these properties, their commercial loans, and add so many different layers and sources of revenue onto these sites and properties. So it's such an interesting episode. We go really, really deep into all the tactics, all the strategies, and all the ways that she's able to increase the NOI on these properties and build this up to a $30 million portfolio, which is printing her out high, high six figures in cash flow. So guys, today's an awesome episode. If you want to hear more from guests like Heather and other people that you hear on the podcast, come join our Action Academy community. Uh, We have people like this come and speak uh, once or twice a week. And we have the community that's going to help you actually implement your goals for 2024. The price is increasing 25% here in January of 2024. So this is your time to act. If you are interested and you want to talk to me, you want to talk to a current member, Happy to facilitate that. Go in the show description, click the link to book a call, and I'm happy to talk. And as always, if you are looking to give a stocking stuffer and a Christmas present, I wrote a book that is a pretty sick size to fit into a stocking from passive to passionate. Go check it out on Amazon, also in the show description. Guys, thank you so much. Let's get to work. Hey. Heather Blankenship, long time coming. How are you? Great. Yourself? I'm doing awesome. It, it's, it's funny because we just spoke and I did the two greatest sins of podcasting right before we came on here for the first time. Number one is I brought the wrong freaking cord for my microphone. So ladies and gentlemen, you're getting AirPod Brian today, but it's okay because it's not about me. It's about the, the woman, the myth, the Blankenship here. So it's going to be amazing. And I also was right next to construction. So we're going to have an awesome podcast interview. We're going to get all of that out. And it's going to be amazing. So Heather, introduce yourself to the audience for somebody that hasn't heard of you or doesn't know anything about your brand or what you do. What's your elevator pitch for Heather Blankenship? 
Sure. Over a decade ago, I was driving across the country in a camper from Florida to California. And I just kept looking around thinking, oh my gosh, these people are making so much money. They're just renting parking spots. In reality, that would be like owning parking garages. There's so much more customer service and operations involved in that. But good thing I didn't know that. By the time I got to California, I had bought an RV park that I had never seen that was in bankruptcy. Somebody had gone bankrupt and the bank had the RV park, but it was in the tourist town near where I lived in Tennessee at the time. And I thought, dude, with this location, how could this go wrong? I knew nothing about running a business. I knew nothing about real estate. I didn't even know I had bought real estate. Honestly, I thought I was buying a business. And here, I don't know, 12 years later, that property is worth about $13 million. I've bought over $30 million in real estate. And it has given me this amazing financial freedom to homeschool and support all four of my kids, as well as talk to fun people like you on social media and podcasts. <laughs> Sounds like a good life. I, I think that's a pretty cool idea. So let's simply just buy $30 million of commercial real estate at the end of this podcast episode, ladies and gentlemen. I freaking love it. So <laughs> You said a quick elevator pitch. I, I think we left this. a few no, things no, out. This is, this is perfect. They're locked in now. We're all in. So I'm excited about this because there's actually a specific point of your story of that first purchase that I want to hit on. But first, I want to talk about the mindset of this because you said something there that I think is really interesting. And that was almost, they say ignorance is bliss. It's, I think that sometimes people overanalyze. We have analysis paralysis. And I think that everyone is waiting until they have every single duck in a row to make that first decision. And it sometimes is actually to the negative effect. And instead of just saying, hey, this is figure outable, I've got this. So I'm curious, as somebody that you obviously had a little bit of an adventurous and free spirit just hopping in a van and winging it across the country, right? So there's obviously like some screws loose to the good degree in the brain where it's not normal, right? Walk us through your mindset to even think that this was possible or figure outable as you were like, nobody would normally say, I could buy that. So what do you think was different? <laughs> so there's a couple things I think that play into that. In Sam Zell's book, if you're not familiar with Sam Zell, he's like, awesome. he died recently and he was the largest owner of like warehouse space, multifamily, RV parks and mobile home parks. Like the man is the king in real estate, if you know anything about him. And if you read his book that's called Am I Being Too Subtle? He talks about when he did his first deal in college, he was successful because he didn't know he shouldn't have been. Because now mm. that the, all the things that I know, the, the original loan was $3.2 million, y'all. And I was 26. I would never have gone like now. I would never go ask for this loan that I like didn't even almost qualify for, right? Like I but I didn't know any better. So I called the bank and I'm like, hey, I want to buy this. And they're like, how much money do you have? I'm like, I'll have any. <laughs> and so they gave me a non-recourse loan with no money down. And for those of you who don't know, non-recourse simply means there's no repercussions. So if I wanted to give it back, I could. So there was very little risk, which I didn't even understand enough to know that there was very little risk. I just knew that I had this huge opportunity and I was going to go after it. And ever since I was a little kid, I can remember being like three or four years old. My mom would say, don't say I can't say I can and do it. She was not this mom that was like, oh, you can be anything. This like most parents do. It was more of you can figure anything out. You just have to go do it. And I think instilling that mindset has always made me think, oh, I can figure that out. 
here we are. Yeah. <laughs> one of my best friends, I remember this quote from George Lopez way back in the day, but one of my best friends, he's, dude, I'm a Mexican. I'm not a Mexican. All right. I've got this. Get out of my <laughs> way. I like, get out of my way. I'm figuring all this out. And he freaking does. And it's awesome. So I exactly. love that attitude. I love that attitude. And there's a point of this story that I think is really important that we'll hit on in a second. But what I want to, what I want to highlight here. So some people may hear this and they say, Heather must be nice. I'm glad you were able to do that back in the day. But today with the high interest rates and all of this stuff, there's no way that this would work. I would argue the fact that just asking for what you want and shooting your shot is the moral of the story that you're driving home here is reach out to that seller that's doing that and ask for seller financing. Ask to buy the property, see what it would take, correct? Yep. Whether it's creative financing, it's getting a partner, it's getting a loan from a family member, it's refinancing your house. Like usually if you keep trying and trying, you keep what where they talk about, you beat your head up against the wall, you'll get something that works. But you have to keep trying. Even if it's that you need to, not that this is the greatest thing you want to do, but even if you had to go on a budget and save your money for a year or two to be able to do it, there is a way. You just have to be willing to keep like shooting that shot on what it is and figuring it out. Yeah, you can't lose if you don't quit. But what happens right. next is, I think, the most important part of your story, because today, everyone, people are trying to do their first deal. It may be a commercial. It may be a large multifamily. It may be one of these larger acquisitions or buying a small business like you were thought you were doing originally. And their first thought is, let me hire the operator to get in there, take it, right? How many times have you heard that on social media today where it's, okay, yeah, I'll, hire, I'll buy the business. I'll just hire an operator, right? And it's super sexy. But that's not what you did for the first one. And I think that what you did and how you did it was actually the best way to do the first deal. So talk to us about sleeping on a floor for six months. Yeah, I don't think you can. So I get the flashy like Instagram saying of, like you said, I'm just going to hire an operator. Here's the problem. Unless you've worked in this industry your entire life or your spouse did or your parents did, like you don't know what you don't know. So if you don't go operate that business, at least for a short period of time, your ability to maximize the cash flow, properly manage your team, and make really great decisions is going to be next to impossible. Yes, you can do it that way, but it is not going to be maximized and ran the way it should be. That original RV park that I bought has over 10 streams of revenue at this point, and it is pumping out the cash. It takes in $2.5 million a year. But the only way that it's able to do that is that I was there working in the office, like he said, slept in the floor for the first six months, figuring out how to make it work. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known ex all of the customer complaints to hear exactly what they needed, their attitudes and their demeanors when they were checking in to know that I needed to change that check-in process. Like All of the different things that you implement are from being boots on the ground. And am I saying that I think you have to work in your business forever? No, but you need to do it for long enough to be able to put great people in places and know that those SOPs that you're creating for the people who are going to take over cover everything and didn't miss something. You need to be able to walk through all of those steps. Anybody who's, hey, I want to buy an RV park. One of the first things I say to them is, have you ever been in an RV? Because if you haven't, you need to rent one, borrow your friends, something, drive where you're going, 
and figure out how hard it is to get from the exit to the location in this giant vehicle. How do you park? How do you check in? Because those things are going to be major in your business decisions when you see that after driving for four hours, how difficult it is to get in your parking spot or how easy it is. Same with the check-in process. If it takes you 45 minutes to check in, your customers are going to be pissed and your customer service is going to be bad. Because think about when you're traveling and you've been in the airport all day and your flights are delayed. You just want your room. You don't want to sit there and wait in this giant check-in line for your hotel. The same things apply. So when you're putting together those systems and processes, you need to have walked through that step-by-step to be able to make those decisions. That's the nuance, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had had Allie Webb on, who was the founder of Drybar. So she just sold that for $220 million. And she was talking about when she used to go get her hair done because she came up in the salon world. So she knew salons like the back of her hand. And as she was going to get her hair done and get blowout, she was like, it was dark. It was a really crappy environment. It was a crappy experience. And then so she, when she started dry bar, she was like, let me make it bright and colorful and pop and fun because I went through the thing. I didn't like the thing. So I changed the thing. I really like that you said that. I think it's an important point to drive home is go in your business so that you know what you know, so that you can start delegating it after the fact. I think that's super important that nobody really talks about. Yeah, there's super simple things that you don't know you need to fix if you haven't been there. It's similar to if you own Airbnbs and you like go stay in your competitor that's the closest competitor to you for an Airbnb and you want to see like how their short-term rental property operates and what they have that you don't have. It's like you need to do the same thing to your own business. And so something that's super simple, like you were just talking about in RV parks, a lot of RV parks have you put your trash out in front of your camper at a certain time every morning. And then their maintenance team picks it up and takes it to the dumpster. It looks nasty. It smells nasty. And half the time animals get in it and tear it up and make this big mess. I used to hate that about RV parks. So I make sure that mine have these like really pretty wooden bins on every other site so that the guests can put their trash in those wooden bins whenever they want to, instead of having it sitting in their camper. And then my maintenance team has a schedule of when they make rounds to pick up trash in like throughout the day, as opposed to this nasty mess. And that's something that's super simple, like you're talking about with dry bar. But if you hadn't had that experience, you wouldn't know that needed fixed. Because most people aren't going to complain about that because it's a normal in our industry. But it's something that you need to have been there to know it needs fixed. Yeah, exactly. So before we dive into the micro details of how you finance, how you get both equity and cash flow from these properties and why the asset class is phenomenal. Let's talk a little bit about some macro trends here. Mobile home parks are becoming sexier and in vogue uh, for being recession resistant in our state of the market. Uh, so when it comes to RVs and, and camping and traveling like this, do we see a macro trend? Because I know nothing about this space. Do we see a macro trend of this increasing with people that are doing what you did before? Is that growing? Is it kind of flatlined? What are we seeing with travel and RV usage? Yeah, so the cool thing about RV parks is that they do really well in like a great economy and one that's not doing so great. And that's because... With the great economy, people still love unique experiences. They like being able to go... Because a lot of campgrounds or RV parks have both spots to park your camper if you have one, or you can rent a camper that's on the site if you want a cool experience to go stay in a camper and you don't own one. They have tiny homes or camping cabins, so you can go stay in these little tiny homes. They have glamping tents. They have tree houses. They have yurts. They have all kinds of fun experiences. 
in a great economy, people are going because they like that unique experience. In an economy that's not so hot, people don't stop going on vacation. They look for cheaper, more affordable options. Mm. And it's part of your your process when you're looking for an RV park. There is data that shows that people travel an average of 150 miles when they're when they're going on a road trip like that. So if you draw your 150 mile radius around the park you're considering, you're looking at what areas you're pulling from. Like how if we're talking about, say, Texas, like how far Austin, Dallas and Houston from these areas that we're pulling from. And you're not buying a family of four or five aren't buying four or five plane tickets. Right. We're all getting in the car and we're going to our camping spot. You're not going to pay to go out to eat all your meals. You're going to cook some stuff over the campfire. A lot of campgrounds have activities going on all day, whether it's things like hiking and fishing and different outdoor activities or the campground itself has fun themed activities. It's just a more affordable way to go on vacation, especially when there's multiple people that you're paying for. So they do well in that that down economy as well as when the economy is doing great. I'm sold, Heather. I'm in. No, I have to go get an RV. I can't stay <laughs> out of the parks. I'm in now. No, that sounds freaking yep. awesome. Yeah. And I have a couple of friends that did that as well, where they went and they were high performing, wheeling and dealing in corporate, and they got an RV and they've been doing that same thing. So yeah, I definitely see it myself. So let's talk about the nitty gritty. Like, how does one buy an RV park? Like you said before, you thought you were buying a business, but then it was more so valued as commercial real estate, yet you have 10 income streams from like the glamping, the tiny homes, all this stuff. So let's walk through a financing 101 of an RV park. Somebody's listening to this and they're like, man, I remember when I was a kid and I was going into RVs. I love this or I love this space and it's adjacent to what I've already been doing. How do I get started in this? So how do you, how are these perks valued? So what you're talking about is a really great point because RV parks are this perfect mix between cash flow and appreciation. Everybody was hot on multifamily for a while. And that's because a lot of that appreciation appreciates really well. You get cash flow, but it's not like amazing cash flow, which is why people are then like, oh, I want a short term rental because they cash flow so well. But you don't get the um, appreciation on that because it's not valued as a commercial property. I'm sure when you describe your audience, most people understand how commercial real estate is valued based on your net operating income and and a cap rate. Depending on what the industry is, the cap rates vary dramatically, right? And so with RV parks, not only do we have the site income, meaning where the people park and they pay a price per night or per month, depending on what type of RV park you have, to stay there... You have all other kinds of revenue because we have golf cart rentals. There's usually laundry facilities at these places. So you have a whole laundry mat included into this with all your quarters or maybe you've gone digital and people are scanning an app. My camp store alone brings in over $150,000 a year. So people Damn. are not only are they buying souvenirs. Yeah, not only are they buying souvenirs, they're buying like their camping supplies they've forgotten, like their RV toilet paper, or maybe they forgot their water hose connector. And then the kids buy candy, we sell pizzas. Like it's just sky's the limit on your creative revenue streams that you have coming into an RV park. But when we're talking about valuing those, they typically have about a 50% expense ratio. Yeah. So when you're looking at a park, one of the biggest skills that's your mix between art and science is being able to dig through their profit and loss statements and see what's missing and what's extra in there. Because with multifamily, it's pretty... I own Section 8 multifamily also. And so I, I usually compare it to that. Those are pretty cut and dry. You know that like 
the basic things that you're going to have. There might be some lawn care. There might be some snow removal. You're going to have some capital expenses. You're going to have maybe property management, but generally like your 10 boxes you're trying to check, right? And with RV parks, it's a little more of an art because all these parks operate differently. Like some of them have... I don't know, a lake or a river, and you've got different expenses related to that. Some of them have giant water parks. Some of they, There's all these different factors, and you're looking for different things in the profit and loss statement because of this. But some common things that are going to be in there that you need to find, over 88% of RV parks are owned by mom and pop. And while mom and pop might love their RV parks, they aren't like great investors. So they aren't mm. really great at having these accurate books. So when you're looking through it, you're usually going to find like Pop's truck payment, maybe their personal insurance, like stuff that tax-wise is totally fine that's in there. But for you as the next owner, those expenses aren't going to transfer over to you. But they've been mm. putting them in there just for tax purposes. So digging through and figuring out what personal stuff they have in there that needs to come out. Then you're going to be looking at sections like their payroll. And usually they're going to be like, oh, we have 10 employees. And you're like, your payroll is only 100 grand. How's that possible? Maybe they're like exchanging some sites for their work, which isn't legal. If you got audited, you would be in trouble. And oftentimes mom and pop aren't paying themselves anything, but it will take you four employees to make up for them if you're going to be hiring that operator like we talked about earlier. And so you need to add in a salary for those four people that are going to make up for mom and pop. So just digging through your profit and loss statement and getting really great at knowing what needs to be added in and what needs to be taken out. Once you get yeah. done with that, go ahead. You're you going. You're on a roll. <laughs> so... So once you're done with that, you're going to have your net operating income, cap rates on RV parks or the Wild West. You'll see parks that sell at like this 5% cap rate in California because they're like on the water and you're like, dude, who can pay that? And then you'll see ones that have this tremendous amount of deferred maintenance and they sell at like a 12 cap. It really depends on the deferred maintenance in the market. But I am looking for the RV parks with the low hanging fruit. And what I mean by that is I want some... I want a property that has a good location. Mom and pop have been doing a good job operating it, but they haven't really come into 2023 with yeah. their operations. And so some things that aren't going to be heavy moves in capital expenses are going to really move the bar for you on income. And that's stuff like maybe they aren't using a really great software. And because of that, they aren't getting the dynamic pricing or the occupancy optimization. Uh, maybe they don't have online reservations. And uh, like 60% of our reservations are booked online. So if they don't have online reservations, somebody's they're going to the next, the next people to find their park. Some really low-hanging fruit stuff like that can increase the revenue dramatically without having to spend a lot of money. And those are the types of things I'm looking for when I'm looking for a park. Okay. So when, whenever you're looking at the P&L, what's the primary driver of revenue? Is it like lot rent, like it would be for mobile homes? It's going to depend on the park and what their mix is, but it should be their site income. They're like nightly site income. Okay. And then are all these other... So when I see all these different like revenue streams, do they include all of these streams within the one singular P&L? Like we have an on-site store, we have a restaurant, we have a laundromat. That's all included. Okay. Yep. So she's nodding people. She's nodding. <laughs> so this is all in one yes. P&L. Yes. Except if you look at this P&L... And that primary income, like you just talked about, comes from... Because sometimes they'll have a gas station at the front of them. 
if 80% of your money is coming from a gas station, dude, you're not evaluating an RV park. You're evaluating a gas station that happens to have an RV, RV park. park as a side hustle. You'll see yeah. these with marinas too. If this is actually a marina and most of your money is coming from the marina side of it, like you're evaluating a marina, not an RV park, right? So yeah. like you said, that top line in the, the P&L should be predominantly the sites. Or even I can remember going over one park and I'm like, Dude, all their money comes from a bar. This is a bar that happens to have a couple RV sites. Like, I'm not looking to buy a bar. Yeah, exactly. Super interesting. So when you're looking for deals, when you're hunting for kind of lead flow here, is this something that you're even looking at on LoopNet or Crexy? Or is this something where you're going direct to seller, direct to owner? All of the above. So you're going to find some of these deals on LoopNet and Crexy. You're going to... Your best bet is always like cold calling and mix with mail outs. Don't probably wouldn't do any door knocking because most of the owners are so busy with the operations that you just be irritating them. But absolutely those things. But there's also niche specific websites for RV parks. Places like Parks and Places, RVParkStore.com, Campground Connection. There, there's... There's niche specific websites that some people put their RV parks for sale on. Okay. And guys, also Facebook I'll put groups. The... just like mobile home parks, the Facebook groups are big too. Awesome. And I'll put those all in the show description, guys. So don't worry. If you're driving, please don't fall off the side of the road while you're trying to take those down. <laughs> but no, that's awesome. When you're analyzing a PL, let's talk about two to three red flags that maybe you would be looking at when you're doing a quick scan, like back of the napkin map. Like, what are the two or three of the most common red flags that you see where you're like, oh, like this isn't one can be, oh, this isn't even an RV party. This is a bar or this is a gas station. That, so that could be one. What are some other red flags that you're looking for that could uh, kill a deal? So some of my red flags aren't even going to be on the profit and loss statement. Your red flags are related to utilities. Your utilities are a big deal, whether we're talking about RV parks or mobile home parks. And it's always like a home run if they're city water, city sewer. But in some of these beautiful places that people might like to hike or near national parks, you're not going to have city water and city sewer. It's going to be some form of private utility. And if you have a well and a septic, okay, fine. Just make sure you have really great inspections during your due diligence. But... They get really crazy with some of this stuff with lift stations and wastewater treatment plants and lagoons and wild west of like how you get rid of waste. And the problem becomes if you're buying, let's say, a million dollar RV park, um, which would still be a smaller park. If something goes wrong with that lift station or that wastewater treatment plant, it could cost more than the value of the property for you to fix that. So be really careful with the types of utilities that are in place. I'm not saying you can't buy a park and be successful that has one of those things, but you really need to do your due diligence on the condition of that and what it would cost to replace because you're eventually going to have to replace and fix it. Those utilities are a big deal. The next big deal that you could have a red flag on is your zoning and permitting. Sometimes mom and pop are zoned and permitted for, let's say, 50 sites and Pop got bored one day and he went and took the backhoe and built like an additional 20 sites. And you think you're buying a 70 site park, but then when it comes time to go through due diligence and you close and then the city's late, you're only supposed to have 50 sites here and we pass new regulations and you can't have those other 20. Your numbers are totally messed up and you're screwed. So proper zoning and permitting is a huge deal. And when you look into this zoning and permitting, 
you're going to want to make sure that you get it in writing. Don't just call the city and be like, oh, are they allowed to do this? Sure. Make them send you an email or write a letter that you pick up that says this property at XYZ address is properly zoned and permitted for X number of sites. The number of sites that you think you're getting. Then the third red flag would be if you're planning to expand, because a great strategy for buying RV parks is buying a smaller RV park that still has land available to expand because you'll be getting some cash flow while you're building that addition. Sometimes it can cost entirely too much money to develop those out to make it worth it. I was looking at a five-acre parcel next to one of my parks a couple of years ago, thinking that it was going to be this great home run. But when I started digging into the due diligence of it, I needed over a million dollars in dirt just to start development. That totally ruined my numbers. There was no way to break even on that, much less make money after I'd spent a million dollars moving dirt. So there's some stuff that you dig into that's not even related to the profit and loss statement to get those red flags and green flags. So let's now move into what are your first kind of areas of value at? So you were talking about a couple of different streams where you're like, maybe you can add glamping to it. Maybe you can add like the convenience store to it. So if you're buying a park or somebody is buying a park, what are some of the first things that are like the lowest uh, amount of energy or effort to get up and running versus the ROI on them? What are the first couple of things that you're looking at? For example, to like to land this plane, my buddy buys a lot of laundromats. And some of the first things he does when he buys a laundromat is new paint. That's an immediate ROI. It makes it brighter. And he puts uh, a lot of mirrors up in the corners so that when women are in there doing the laundry, they're able to see and there's like a safety component. So that's like a huge thing that immediately increases how much you know how often people are there. So what are your first improvements that you normally are trying to make? Uh, obviously, it's dependent, but some rules of thumb. Yep. A couple of those are going to be... We talked a little bit about it earlier, but your software. And your software is so important because we're going to use a couple different things in that software. Um, Dynamic pricing. Some of you may or may not know what that is. They use it in airlines, hotels, all types of travel and other industries. But the price that people pay per night changes depending on the demand, right? Mm -hmm. And so at my parks, every 10% of occupancy, the price increases 10%. And so for your software to automatically do that dramatically increases your income. It's common for mom and pop to be like, oh, it's 50 bucks a night and on a holiday it's 75 bucks. Okay. That's the same idea. Only we want a little more sophisticated model that does that off of your demand as the sites are being booked. The next thing is going to be occupancy optimization. RVers are used to being able to be like, ooh, I love site number nine. I want to book site number nine. You don't get to pick what hotel room number you stay in when you're staying at a hotel. (laughs) Sometimes they're like, hey, you want to be on a high floor or a low floor when you're checking in? But that's about it. And oftentimes that's not even a thing. And so if you let them pick the site they're going to stay on, you lose a ton of money. So imagine a Tetris grid and the left side is going to give you like site numbers. One, two, three, four, five. The top of it's going to give you dates. Let's say site number one is going to come in for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And site number two is going to come in for Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Now what happens is somebody gets online and they're like, ooh, I want to come Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday you no longer have anything available because those people are booked on different sites. 
Mm. Your software optimization is going to move the people who were booked on site number two up to number one. Now number one is booked for the whole week. And that gives site number two opening to book for that pe- those people we just described. So it automatically doing that makes you an extra five, six hundred dollars that back in the day we used to sit in the office and like manually move people around to try and create one more spot to get mm-hmm. somebody in. And stuff like that is is literally spending no money to be able to make more money in that. And those are some of the lowest hanging fruit. Uh, do you have any specific software that you recommend for that? Because I know Airbnb has like their own apps and stuff. Yeah, and I, I think people are they hate on that pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I use something called CampSpot. I really like it. I've been with them for five or six years now, um, and. There's a lot of software programs out there now that do all of the same things. But some of the things you're looking for is you want them to integrate with stuff like Airbnb because oftentimes those glamping tents or camping cabins we talked about earlier, you'll want to be able to put those on Airbnb and that integrate with your software. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as them to have really great customer service hours because sometimes those they're like, oh, we have nine to five customer service. Great. Most of my customers check in at 7 p.m. So if something's going wrong and I can't call customer service, it's not going to work out really well. So your tech support is a big deal too. Like what kind of hours they have for that. Yeah. Camp spot, run my girl an affiliate. <laughs> let's get a let's get the referral going. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Great. How are you normally structuring these deals? So when so somebody's looking over the PL, they've taken your advice, they're like, okay, this looks like a good deal. Is this an industry where seller financing is common? What's normally the down payment for these types of loans? Because I'm assuming you're just doing a pure commercial loan, correct? Yeah. And so Seller financing is common in both RV parks and mobile home parks. One of the reasons that it works out great is because these businesses or properties have been in a lot of families for generations. So oftentimes, they don't have debt on the property. Also, they don't think they want seller financing to begin with. So you need to be really great at explaining why seller financing is a benefit to them. Don't just say, Hey, do you want to seller finance this? They're going to say no. Because they think of it as if you screw up, I have to start over. So you need a really great pitch on seller financing. And a lot of people will be swayed in that direction when you... For example, my offer letters give them two offers. Here's what Mm -hmm. I'll pay you if I have to go out and get a loan. Here's what I'll pay you if you sell or finance it. Here's how much more money you would make by me paying you interest, blah, blah. You know, the, the standard to do something like that. But if you don't have seller financing as an option... Typical commercial loans for these are going to require 25 to 30% down. I do have scenarios where I've gotten a combination of seller financing and a commercial loan. You just have to make sure that the bank you're using is willing to let you do something like that. Sure. And then are you using more so local credit unions, stuff like that? We have relationships or do you use the nationals? I use so for mobile home parks, it's usually it's easy to use national banks, but for RV parks, you are a lot better off with a local bank or credit union. And when I say local, I don't mean like your local branch of Bank of America, like an actual local or local, regional bank yeah. for your area. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, 25, 30, 30% down. Okay. So that's going to be a lot. And I'm assuming you still need to have, if you're doing the traditional loan, you're going to need to have the balance sheet that reflects the purchase price, correct? Yep. Okay. That's going to be a good angle. Just like for any other commercial real estate guys that are listening, you know, that's where somebody, 
partnerships work. You know, that's a great time to bring someone in that has the balance sheet to where you can do the loan. And then you could be the operator like Heather was talking about in the beginning. They need somebody to be on site doing the thing. So if you don't have the balance sheet right now, yeah, you probably can't get the non-recourse loan for 3.2 million today, (laughs) right? But there's so many people with millions of dollars that want to have advantageous investments, whether it's capital or debt partners or equity partners. Are there any that you're doing that right now? Or are you able to just use this equity snowball that you've accumulated over the last 12 years to just swing for the fences now? Yeah, I've been able to use the equity that I've accumulated over the years to be able to continue to buy more and more properties. Yeah, perfect. And so you say they appreciate well as as well, correct? They do. Yeah, that that original park that I was talking about, I paid $3.2 million for. It's worth $13 million now. So they're appreciating just like you think of with commercial real estate, only you can push those streams of revenue, which you can't necessarily do in in say multifamily, you can only raise the rent so much and people stay, right? And then in some areas, there's rent control. So you only have so much you can raise. Um, Even that site rent or site income that we were talking about, you can raise that dramatically. Just because mom and pop were charging $25, you do your market research and see that they should have been charging $75. You can change that in one month as opposed to if you had bought a mobile home park, you can't triple people's rent, right? Because they can't Mm -hmm. move their home. You're going to end up in trouble. So because it's a nightly thing, typically, there are long-term RV parks, but that's a whole nother conversation. Because it's typically a nightly thing, it's a pretty quick transition. Mm -hmm. So you said these are running at a 50% expense ratio. So that's insane. So people talk about laundromats as this kind of cash flow king. When you're looking at that, I'm like, hell... Like that's as good of an expense ratio as a freaking laundromat. Now, it, it requires is. a yeah, little plus... bit more work, but higher upside. So are you willing to share what a normal park cash flows? And I know it's always going to be, it depends, right? Yeah, there's, there is you, no... You guys are bringing? Yeah, there is no normal park with that because they vary yeah. so dramatically. And laundromats, even though you can say they vary, they're still pretty similar. They still have the same ingredients. Correct. RV parks, that's that art and science thing I was talking about with evaluating them. They're so different because you have parks that are off the side of the interstate that people stay at for one night as they're traveling to and from. You have parks that are seasonal parks. People treat them almost like going to the lake house for the weekend. You have parks that operate like a resort would and people go there on their family vacation for the week. Then you have long-term parks that function very similar to a mobile home park. And they're all going to have different ingredients. There isn't really like a standard. This is how it works. Gotcha. So if you were in the position today of someone that is working that six-figure job, maybe they have a couple, like I said, a couple properties. Now they hear you today and they're like, all right, I've got the Heather bug. I'm the Blankenship bug, if you will. I'm ready to go. I want a freaking RV park. I need to replace freaking six figures of income to be able to leave this job and these freaking rentals I've got are maybe giving me 800 bucks. I need to figure out how to replace this cash flow. What is there a rule of thumb? Are we talking maybe one or two parks can get them over the hump? So parks, that's another thing with that. Parks, you could buy a 10 site park or you could buy a 2000 site park. park, Yeah. Right. That's the difference, right? Because even if we talked about this, like talking about from multifamily, like people talk about four units as multifamily and normally like, a duplex isn't going to replace your income. 
but a hundred yeah. unit apartment complex might. So that's Bingo. why we're saying these are dramatically different. And the site rent, the site income that you get in the middle of a tourist town is going to be dramatically different than what you get out in the sticks for people just to hike around for a couple hours. Got so it. it's really going to vary depending on the area you're in. And I'll give you an example. That original park we keep talking about um, has 133 sites and it brings in that two and a half million dollars a year. But I regularly see profit and loss statements for parks that are 100 to 150 sites that are bringing in a fourth of that because they're not in they're not maximizing their revenue. They're not in it. That mm. one's in a tourist town. So that one is capped out like what you're going to bring in, maximize the income per site. It also depends on the length of season. When you're saying how many parks? Well, are you buying in, I don't know, Idaho, where your season is five months and you're only open from Memorial Day to Labor Day? And so your revenue is going to... And the price is going to reflect that, right? Because we're buying mm -hmm. on a cap rate. But the number of sites you need or the number of parks you need to replace your income is going to change depending on the seasonality of the location. That original park we're talking about has a 10-month season. So we're bringing in great cash flow for 10 months. So that's different than a park that only has four or five months bringing in that great cash flow. Do you understand how that Yeah, works? got it. Yeah, that makes sense. So let me refine the question a little bit. So like in multifamily right now, the sweet spot that we're seeing is people buying between that kind of 20 to 60 unit is that sweet spot where it's beneath the really sophisticated investors is the mom and pop area. To refine the question a little bit, maybe a pad size or maybe a lot size. Is there like a ballpark that you would recommend for somebody doing their first deal? As an example, you wouldn't go buy like a 500, multi, 500 unit multifamily for your first deal, probably. Probably stay between the 20 to 70. So is there a lot size that you recommend for a beginner to get their hands dirty? So you're going to think of it a little differently. You're going to think of it as how will I exit from this? Mm. Mobile home parks, you think of the same way. Because when you're buying, you need to think of the end in mind. Do you Are you 25 and you plan on owning this for the next 40 or 50 years and passing it on to the next generation? Or is this a stepping stone for something else? What is your strategy with buying and then your exit strategy? And so if you want to be able to exit to those institutions that you're talking about, that sweet spot where you're not competing with the institutions, but you want to exit to the institutions because they're going to pay those really great numbers when it's yeah. time to sell, you're going to buy something that's smaller. And when I say smaller, 150 sites or less. So you could Got buy it. something that's 25 sites, but it needs room to expand. So mm. let's say you, you're, you've called mom and pop and you're getting the information to decide if you're interested in the property. And they're like, we, ha we have 25 acres because you're, that's one of the things your questions is going to be like, how much land do you have? We have 25 acres. Great. How much of that 25 acres have you used for the current park? And if they're like, we've used half of it. Great. That means we have 12 and a half acres left. Is that my math right on that? 12 and a half acres left <laughs> to develop. <Podcast> <laughs> <laughs> and the, the average for an RV park, like your rule of thumb is that you can put 10 sites per acre. Sometimes it's going to be less. Sometimes it's going to be more because there's going to be wetlands that you can't develop on or maybe some setbacks from the septic tanks or some zoning rules. But just your back of the napkin, like we were talking about, you're going to think of it as I can add 10 sites per acre. 
then you're thinking about how big can this park get? Because if you want to exit to those institutions, you need to have a pretty large park or at least the potential to have that. You're looking for that smaller park so that it fits in your budget right now and is manageable, but has the ability to grow to something significantly larger. Perfect. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And that's why when I do these, I love doing these, but do research on you, but I also enjoy being a little bit blind in the asset class too, because that's where the curiosity actually comes from, as opposed to going and researching every single thing about RV parks. And then I'm like, okay, I know what Heather's going to say here. So that's freaking awesome. All right, cool. So what is next for you? Now that you have equity on your side, you have time on your side, Are you looking to build a massive RV park empire or are you looking to diversify? What's next for Heather Blankenship? So right now I own RV parks, mobile home parks. I actually have more mobile home parks than RV parks. And I own Section 8 multifamily. So I'm pretty diversified on where the RV parks or the tourism industry and the mobile home parks and the Section 8 multifamily are affordable housing. So they do really great even during COVID. All of that performed really well. I've already got the diversification part down and I don't really want to like branch into any other asset classes because I feel like you got to get really great at a couple things. But I am pregnant with my fifth child, even though I have a four month old baby and all my kids are homeschooled. And so I'm getting my butt kicked on the like She needs some acres to expand. Yeah, I'm getting my butt butt kicked on the the home front right now. So my husband is going to become a stay at home dad. He's a physical therapist. And so... We have decided that in January, he's going to start staying home to help with that side of it so that I can continue to focus on this kind of stuff since I'm the primary breadwinner for the household. And so I'm thinking that in my... I'm sure y'all have talked about Vivid Visions before and building out your three-year plan for that. A little bit. (laughs) Yeah. I'm thinking that I... Actually, the book's on my desk. Have you read Lend to Live? I have not. Um, It talks all about being a private money lender. Like we all hear the terms and we see all the chatter, but it's if you start a fund, even though you hear everyone talk about a fund and a syndication, you don't actually know how to do that. It's pretty complex. And so I've been learning a lot about being a private money lender. I think with some of the cash flow I have, I will start doing more private money lending to be a little more passive while I have young babies at home. Because while I did all this stuff as a single mom with my first three, Y'all, I got enough kids now. That's getting rough. Yeah, fair. Hey, just now you can chill. You can rest on it. And that's why we do it, right? You do it so that you have that time. And right now, it's like, yo, I need some mom time. <laughs> and I turn 40 next year. So I've been doing this for 13 years. I feel like you said, that's why we do this. So that you have the ability when you start feeling like that's what you want in your life. If you started... If you didn't start until you were ready to do something like this, you wouldn't be able to do it. I'm really grateful that I started in my 20s so that now as I'm going into my 40s, I'm able to do that. Perfect. So where can people find out more about you, more about what you do, more about the RV parks, mobile home parks and your empire over here? <laughs> sure. I teach all kinds of stuff on Instagram at Heather Blankenship X3 or my website at heatherblankenship.com. Perfect. Go follow there. And thank you so much for coming on. This has been awesome. You were recommended by six or seven mutual friends of ours. So they're like, Heather yet? I was like, no, I don't. Yeah. That's funny you say that because I had the same situation where, do you know him? I'm like, nope. Let me go find his Instagram. I'm like, how do we not know each other? (laughs) Exactly. Awesome. Heather, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate this, especially with the lack of microphone. Hopefully it was still fun. (laughs) Oh, it's perfect. Great job. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks to everyone. This has been Brian and Heather with the Action Academy Podcast. You know what it is. Signing off.